0: There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy There'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see a movie Yeah, we're gonna be a movie movie. Starring everybody And me There'll be heroes bold. There'll be comedy And a lot of fuss that ends for us feel happily a movie We can watch it all develop Starring everybody And me We'll take the world Set it on, it's here. Come on, join in. We're going to start right here. And we are going to start right here. Happy Pride Month, everyone. We are celebrating here on the Rattelage and Broadcasting Network. And I am your host, said Rattledge in broadcasting. I'm the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, <laughs> Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight, we kick off our month-long-ish celebration of queer film. To coincide with lgbtq plus month pride month as it's known here in the year of our lord june 2022 and i am joined by sean comer you're not how do you do sean happy pride month my fine ally friend <laughs> so we're doing thank you we're doing what we did with black history month and it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek um jason teasley and i we looked at the good, the bad, and the ugly in black cinema. So we went all the way. We, we concluded our look at the Shaft movies by looking at the more the more modern ones with Samuel L. Jackson, which, again, some might say hmm, a little tongue in cheek there. But like, no, Shaft has its place in, in black cinema. And we discussed that pretty thoroughly. Oh, oh yeah. We re-aired The Long Road to Ruin that we did with Pat Mullen, where we look at the first three Shaft movies from the 70s. Um, Jason Teasley and I also did three other movies from the era of 70s exploitation. We looked at Coffee, which is one of the ones that got Pam Greer her career. We looked at uh, Blackula, one of the great cinematic um, experiences in black horror. And we looked mm-hmm. at Superfly, which was made famous by the Curtis May soundtrack. Um, mm-hmm. So we did that. Then we, we, we got serious for a moment. We looked at uh, Spike Lee's we looked at three Spike Lee movies, Malcolm X, Do the Right Thing, and Old Boy. That last one I was made to suffer through. But <laughs> Jason T's like, I demand we watch Old Boy. I'm like, well, I mean, like, she's gotta have it it's right there. But um, whatever. So we did three Spike Lee movies and then we looked at three modern Black Exploitation movies because why not? We did Pootie Tang, which now <laughs> 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 wanna say everyone. Um happy wanna say. <laughs> Uh on the tip of tie. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and then uh we looked at the ladies' man with Tim Meadows. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> my um, I got the I got to pick the last one, and I picked Soul Plane Mark. Oh. So here we are again with Pride Month, we're doing the bad and the ugly cinema ish. We're gonna be looking at Roland Emmerich's Stonewall. Yes, he took a break from blowing up the planet and everything that got gets in his way to focus on the Stonewall riots. Uh, in the history of the LGBTQ community. We're looking at Basic Instinct, which uh, the consensus seems to be nice movie, not great queer, queer representation. And then uh, we were going to do base, uh, Naked Lunch, but I can't find that streaming anywhere. So we swapped it out with But I'm a Cheerleader, which is an interesting movie in that the uh, the criticism of it isn't about it, it, the queer nature. In fact, from, from queer review, it's actually quite positive. It's, it's a very, it's very much appreciated yeah. film. The negative mm-hmm. press this thing gets is it's it's, it's campiness. So we'll, we'll talk about that at length. But I just want to give Sean a moment here to talk about why he's here doing the series of movie reviews with me, why it was important to do representation of queer cinema here in the month of June, Sean.
1: Well, it's very simple. It's because the tricky thing that you have to remember about watching movies that are made through queer eyes and by queer hands is that no one, no, no straight person is ever going to be able to tell our stories quite the way that we can. And in fact, it, amidst the queer community, there's alternately both so much, I, I think, more division than a lot of straight people would think, but at the same time, a lot more intersectionality. It's 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 a really it's a really bizarre conundrum. And so you sometimes have to look at some of these depictions with, with kind of a a bit of subtlety to to kind of fully take in the fact that there's perspectives that no one from kind of outside the rainbow is quite going to understand Um, and is, and you know, some of these are going to be appreciated or viewed very differently by queer viewers. Uh, Take basic, basic instinct. For example, uh, straight audiences fucking loved it, ate it up, and credit where it's due, rightfully so. There's a ton to love about this movie. But on the other hand, members of the LGBT community, especially especially bisexual members of the LGBT community, just kind of had to look at it and go, oh, fuck, this again, huh? (laughs) Um, and, and again, we'll get to that. And, you know, I, I kind of feel that even though I don't consider myself by any means an authority on queer history, queer cinema, you know, any of any of it necessarily that I've... I tend to see things a little bit differently as a member of the community and so i feel that i'm kind of doing a service to our product by just kind of opening up with an honest perspective that you're i almost guarantee not going to not going to get from alexis or pat or or Jason, or even, you know, bless him, brilliant as insightful as he's capable capable of being Robert. And, uh, you know, I hold Robert in
0: nothing but the highest esteem. Because he's awesome, but you're not wrong. Uh, Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, (laughs) Uh, So, again, with all things, whenever I do these sort of theme months or weeks, whatever, I I think there's a tendency, I I just want to touch on this really, really briefly, like in the briefest of fashions. I think there's a tendency to almost infantilize certain communities in a way where, like, we only want to look at, like, the most positive things about them. You know, anything that's bad, anything that's negative, anything that takes away from the message of this thing is good, it should be inclusive, it should be treated as equal, it just gets brushed aside, it gets buried, you know, it's like, we shouldn't talk about these things. No, 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 we should talk about them. We should talk about everything. Bad movies are still good movies to talk about. Roland mm-hmm. Emmerich taking a mm-hmm. swing and a miss at the Stonewall riots is a conversation starter at best. Basic instinct oh in, its rep- God. <laughs> in, its, in its representation of the, the bisexual community and the, the problems people have with it is a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that these mm-hmm. are that the Rattli- at the Rattling Broadcasting Network, everything is fair game. Um, nothing is treated as a Fabergé egg. We We take a swing at everything good, bad or ugly. And so are we going to talk about some of the the high points in queer cinema? Sure, Um, I'll I'll get to the plugs at the end. But um, I can say right now we're doing a whole show dedicated to the best stuff or some of the best stuff. We're going to look at Benedetta, Mm -hmm. Burkbeck Mountain and Mm -hmm. My Own Private Idaho, Mm -hmm. which is considered a landmark film in new queer cinema from the early 1990s queer themed independent filmmaking uh, community. So um, Mm -hmm. we're also going to look at some modern stuff. There's a new movie coming out on Hulu. Uh, Fire Island that deals with the LB- LGBTQ plus community, and there's another one, Master, on Amazon Prime. So you know, the the new, the old, the bad, the good, um, and and these are these are all places to build communication, to have a conversation, to talk about these things. And and lastly, and, and I'm going to put this out there, and we'll jump right into Stonewall. Art is supposed to be provocative. Whether it's through, you know, uh, paintings or sculptures or film or music, art should get you thinking. Art should get you feeling. Art should not always make you comfortable. It should make you at times uncomfortable. And we should be able, as adults, to have conversations about it. And that's what I like to do here. Uh, I don't want to do the safe stuff. I don't want to do the same stuff. (laughs) I have to talk about Marvel one more time. I may jump. (laughs) <laughs> uh, <so. laughs> All right, so let's talk about Stonewall, directed by uh, disaster director extraordinaire Roland Emmerich. Which I'll tell you what, Sean. Let me just say this right up front. When I think of handling sensitive subjects with a deft hand, I think Roland Emmerich, the guy who blew up the White House with an alien ship.
1: You know, wow. <laughs> when I when I when I when I read some of his comments on this movie
0: just you can't not hear him in his voice. I can hear the tumor growing in your brain talking about it. Like wait really you, the 2012 you, guy <laughs> you, you, you can't you can't you can't not hear shit
1: like like yeah I did not make these just for it just for the gay audiences. I had to make this for the straight audiences too and oh fuck does that show um <laughs> Uh, oh, oh oh Stonewall was Stonewall was a vi- Stonewall was a very white event. Nobody wants to talk about wants to talk about that. Yeah, but you sure as shit tried, didn't you? Um <laughs> yeah. you know, I yeah. you know as, as as a director, I have to I have to insert myself into into the movie and I am white and I am white and gay. I'm
0: you, me, I am wanna- telling you I'm Roland. We noticed. I know I know I joke about like I want to start a studio, you know, and I and do all these big budgets. I also want to start an independent studio and my first movie is like, going to have Michael Bay direct a movie about Black Wall Street. I mean, like let's just get the worst directors to direct oh, the most sensitive don't. subjects in, in human history. Please, please, please don't. I don't I don't want my
1: best friend to have to disappear into Witsec. But at the same time, I, but at the same time, I also don't want to have to look at that fact and say he brought it on himself.
0: You know, I'm trying to think of like another really shitty director. Like, and let, we'll get him to do like the the, tra- the the story of the Trail of Tears. Um, let's let's just go oh, go, go full tilt with this. <laughs> All right, so Stonewall, 2015, a an American twen- uh, coming of age film directed by said Roland Emmerich, written by John robes Bates, starring Jeremy Irvine, Johnny Buchamp, okay. Ron Perlman. Yes.
1: Let's 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 just let's just start.
0: With that, for a moment, <laughs> I'm like one sentence into the <laughs> go ahead.
1: Stonewall is such an important layered.
0: Let me let me say this for people who might not know what this is, or just tuning in because they like to hear us talk about movies. Um, it's set in and around the 1969 Stonewall riots, a violent clash with police that sparked the gay liberation movement in New York City. Um, you want to know more about Stonewall Riots, go ahead and Wikipedia if it, but that's the one-sentence description of what the uh, movie is You about. know
1: what? You know what? I'm going to give you an even better recommendation. I will give you an even better recommendation right the fuck now. Mosey on over to where your finest podcasts are found. Look up You're Wrong About, which, by the way, is one of my favorite podcasts anyway, regardless. Hang on just one second. Sorry, I had something stuck in my teeth. I need to get it out. <laughs> Otherwise. Anyway, um, just one of my favorite podcasts in general, but one of my favorite episodes of their entire run has been the one dedicated to the Stonewall Uprising. And that's because co-host Michael Hobbs, as he often 151% of the time does, did some absolutely commendable yeoman's work, putting in so much research to telling what is a complicated and sometimes muddied story of a flashpoint, kind of a big bang event, as some people see it, in the struggle for gay rights. Um, not only is it excellent, it is also 49 minutes shorter <laughs> than this movie. Yeah,
0: this movie sort of interminable. Um Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 two hours and 10 minutes, just about. So, I was going to say
1: that's, that's the first thing. But the second problem, or rather, I should say the very first problem, well, yeah, okay. We'll count, we'll count the movie as too fucking long for its own, for what it is as the first problem. The second problem is the fact that you have such a layered story as this one so many stories you can tell so many portraits you can paint of the gay community in 1966 and instead you decided to tell a coming of age story about a about a pretty buff white boy in new york city a pretty blonde a pretty blonde white hayseed who came to New York after he was kicked out, kicked out of his community, disgraced, run out on a rail, what have you. It's like if someone decided they wanted to make a movie about one of the most pivotal moments of one of the most pivotal global conflicts in Earth's history. And they decided to frame it as a romance.
0: <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> okay. what is What actually happens in this movie, if we can speed through this plot? Shortly before fleeing the conservative countryside in the late 1960s and moving to New York City, Danny Winters, a gay teenage boy from Indiana, is discovered by friends while making love with his boyfriend. His father is upset, and while his mother is ambivalent and she feels for her son, she does not stand up to her husband either. His father then refuses to sign the scholarship application for Columbia University, where Danny is supposed to attend. But Danny departs for New York City anyway, leaving behind his supportive younger sister Phoebe. After reaching Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, he is befriended by a multiracial group of young, gay, and gender-fluid street kids and drag queens and witnesses police violence against them. Danny goes into the Stonewall Inn, accompanied by his friends, and asks for a dance by an older man. Trevor, who is a member of the Madachine Society. Later that night, the police raid the bar and arrest some customers. Danny, who did not get arrested because he was not cross-dressing, picks up his friend Ray at the police station the next day. Danny, destitute, then turns to prostitution and is seen disgraced while being fellated by a middle-aged man. Danny then goes to a meeting of the Madachine Society, which purports to attain gay rights through conforming to society rather than radicalism. There he finds Trevor. And though their opinions differ, they end up spending the night together. Danny soon finds Trevor with another young man and heartbroken, he decides to leave the village. Immediately after he is abducted and forcibly sent out to a high-class prostitution business at the direction of Ed Murphy, who runs the Stonewall Inn. Murphy has colluded with corrupt policemen and exploited homeless gay youth to be his own advantage. To his own advantage. Danny ex- escapes, aided by Ray, and the two go into a bar to confront Murphy. The police then raid the bar and arrest some of the customers yet again. Danny is thrown onto the street as well as the rest of the customers, and despite Trevor's dissuasion, hurls a brick into one of the bar's windows, screaming, Gay Power! This instigates the crowd to attack the police who lock themselves up in the bar in response. One year later, after finishing his first year at the university, Danny returns home and tells his sister that he's going to attend the Gay Liberation March on Christopher Street. The film ends on the day of the parade, where he is marching in the street after reuniting with his friends and discovers his mother and sister on the sidewalk. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the craft. We'll talk then a little bit about the um, the criticism, and then we'll move on to basic instinct. Sean, I'm going to give you first crack at this because I don't have a tremendous amount to say other than this film has some. I'm not even going to get into the content of mm-hmm. it. I'm going to leave that to you. But I think on just a pure craft level, my there were two, three issues I can have. I have really quickly are this film is poorly paced. It's kind of all over the place um the perspectives change a little too much i think i don't think roland emmerich really and and who and whoever else wrote this script um the script is credited as yeah john robin bates I, i don't think they they had the characterizations down enough to where unless you have a vested interest in the political subject matter from a character perspective, there's not a whole lot to be interested in here. Um, I, I think Roland Emmerich and uh, John Robins Bates gave it their best shot at telling you a story within this uh, historical event, but I, I don't think it does a great job of really hooking you and and bringing you into why this was important, what the issues were. It just it feels like somebody from about 500 yards away wanting to tell you how bad gay people have it without really understanding. It's like, yeah, I think it does suck with their, yeah. you know, what happens to them. I, I think the police are shitty. And that's about the level of insight this movie has, which is a huge problem. But um, I'll take, let you take a swing at that here. All right. If
1: I had to sum up this movie in two words, it would be wasted opportunity. First off, OK, since we're since we're wanting to talk about just the cinema craft to begin with, I'll, I'll force myself to limit to that. Um, the the look of the movie has been criticized plenty, um, especially by people who were actually fucking there. And one of the big ones I saw, my favorite, might have been arguably they made Christopher Street look like Sesame Street, <laughs> which it was it was ostensibly the gay slum of New of New York, you know, and that's that's not conveyed conveyed at all. It's conveyed as being a neighborhood that's almost just right on the edge of gentrification but like like the way that would look in a lot of in a lot of modern movies uh there were plenty of people that pointed out that they got the look of the actual Stonewall in completely wrong because by pretty much every account um for you know, I'm not going to say good as in justifiable, but good as in, you know, reasons that make sense. Um, for reasons, Stonewall Inn was a shithole. It it's been dressed up today to it's my it's my understanding look all night look all kind of nice, and I, I think Michael Hobbs even described it as bougie. <laughs> um, but back but back then. You have to remember, this was basically a mob-owned speakeasy. No liquor light, no liquor license. All business had to be pretty much done, be pretty much done in cash and under the table. Uh, we're talking about not even any running water. They had to wash dishes in a bucket behind behind the uh behind the bar. Wasn't unusual for there to be an inch or so of water, of standing water in the bathroom at a given time. And that's because you at the time could not serve queer clientele without losing your liquor license. Because sodomy laws were in effect, gender impersonation laws were a thing. At any given time, you had to be able to prove that you were wearing at least three garments that lined up with your assigned at birth gender. Um, There were limits on how many, how many queers you could have congregated at a given, at a given time. Uh, Groups would get kicked out of other bars. This was, this was a restaurant that was kind of run the way it was because the mob knew that they had nowhere else this community had nowhere else that they could, that they could go because their sexual identity, their gender identity, their gender identities made them outcasts from their, from their own groups, from the black community, from the Latino community, the Asian community, the Asian community. It crossed all these, it crossed all these lines. And by the way, we'll, believe me, we'll come back to this later Trans people had it the absolute worst because they got shit just like now, and arguably, well, could argue it's possibly even worse. That they they were that they even found themselves often unwanted within their own community. You know, by their by their own, they had to limit um, how many trans people they let in. They led into the bar, whereas in this movie, it just kind of looks like your average dive spot. You know, you know, just, just your average little run of the mill, cor- run of the mill corner pub. Um, it's you got to be prepared for the fact that for for as much as Holland would insist otherwise, this is a very fucking white movie. Um. It is. it is not nearly as intersectional and diverse as he as he and his lead actor would insist. Um, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the pacing. The only reason the fucking flashbacks to the lead make sense is because of this of this playing it absolutely absurdly pathetically safe coming of age plot. Otherwise, there's there's just no reason whatsoever whatsoever
0: to have it. You talked about this um, movie having a missed opportunity. You had it right there. If 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 this isn't yeah. a story about why in New York City at that time mm-hmm. the cops were beaten on the gaze, well, I don't know why you're not I don't know why you're telling mm-hmm. the story. Like
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's and that's just the thing, is just some of the things you could have touched on, mm-hmm. that if anything, they if they touched on it at all, they barely grazed it, if they mm-hmm. didn't entirely ignore it, was the fact that this is the event you can point to if you ever wonder why we have the phrase, be gay, do crimes. It's because <laughs> at this point, in the gay community, existing as yourself made you an outlaw. Right. So all sins being equal, if I'm breaking the law just by existing, well, inevitably I have no choice but to continue breaking the law in order simply to survive. Because but you I, can't get hired. Go ahead, go ahead.
0: Well, what I'm more pointing to, and not that you're wrong, but what I what I also want to point mm-hmm. out is take a drink, everybody. So you look at the wire. And the wire dealt with the drug war, but the wire dealt also with how the drug war corrupted policing in Baltimore, just as a, mm-hmm. just as an example. And why things don't work. Why is there a contentious relationship mm-hmm. between the Baltimore police force and the Afri- the largely African-American community of Baltimore? What The Wire did a great job of and why it's one of the best shows in the history of television is it didn't just present these things as this is just the way it is and let's let's just show cops beating on black people with no context. Mm -hmm. They showed where the brutality came from. The show talked about the militarization of policing and how when you – this comes up again in We Own This City, by the way, which is currently on HBO, uh, the Mm -hmm. latest David Simon jam. It talks about once you've decided the things that, that it's that it's a war, wars dehumanize people. Once you're dehumanized, mm-hmm. it's nothing for your fellow man to brutalize you. Mm-hmm. That was the story of the wire. why why are, why are the police being inhumane to the local blacks in Baltimore? Because militarization of the police force, among other things, mm-hmm. due to the mm-hmm. due to the nature of the drug war. That's the story of that. The story you should have told with Stonewall. See, Why are the police beating up on gays? What is going on in the New York City police force that they felt this was necessary? None of that stuff gets really touched on. It's so, see, focused, it's, so it's so focused on the personal story of Danny as your uh-huh. point of view character that I that it, it's so it's such a myopic viewpoint the movie has that it misses the context of the Stonewall riots in the first place and it just sort of presents these things are it's bad that cops beat on gays which yeah. is like the dummies take on what was happening there of course that's bad no okay. one would, no one would agree, no one would disagree with that but why why is this happening okay okay
1: well let's let's tuck into that a little bit further and show you some more of what they didn't of what they didn't share okay why were they harassing the gays so much well the two biggest the two biggest factors and they kind of interlock is number one and this is according to um seymour pine the nypd officer who led the stonewall the stonewall raids in most instances it was because it was because the the internalized assurance was that the fairies won't fight back they were the only out group that wouldn't raise a ruckus when the police stepped to them they were the only one left they never had to worry about worry about resisting and he he insisted right up to his death and by the way i have a few problems with him being portrayed as this almost jim gordon like character (laughs) um was that was that Ah, uh, you know, I don't think it was ever really about the gays. I think it was more so about the fact that we were trying to we were trying to put pressure on the mafia and we had arrest quotas that we had to make and they just seemed like the easiest like the easiest targets. And don't get me wrong, I give him some credit for the fact that number one, he admitted in later years that his views were wrong were wrongheaded. And he apologized. I could just about strike him for the fact that he once said, said, Hey, if it, Hey, if you know what I did, did the gay community some good, then I'm, then I'm happy about that. You motherfucker. Um, You know, and the fact that during the riots, and this was something else the movie did not depict at one point, he went around to his fellow officers that were seeking shelter Inside the stone wall, you know, which kind of became the one place they could feel safe um, and told them do not open fire. This is not an offense for which we need to, for which we need to react with violence. So he was kind of trying to contain things. So I give him a modicum of credit for that. So, OK, so that's the answer. That's one answer to that question amidst a lot of of complicated ones there's the fact that they cracked down particularly hard against transgender non-conforming people because, and that was why they were the first ones they often rounded up in the Stonewall raids is because they often told them, well, we know you're sex workers so, you know more intersectionality right there um, there are so many little intricacies of the way that the Stonewall was Stonewall was run. From the fact that you had people who would come in wearing their street clothes and have to somehow kind of bring in um, their drag clothes and change into those once they those once they got there. The Stonewall was kind of was kind of its own little culture. And that never comes across because it becomes an afterthought in its own movie. There's everything that the movie gets wrong, such as the fact that you took Marsha P. Johnson, one of the most influential, impactful, and memorable figures, especially in the early struggle for gay rights, and you reduced her to token comic relief. One surreal part, the, the the part where she and Ed fled from the paddy wagon while handcuffed together. Little fun fact, that is one of the actual stories of that riot that people who were there swear actually happened. It just wasn't it just didn't happen to Ed and Marsha. Um it just didn't happen to them specifically right down to them having to seek down, um, a BDSM artisan to go unlock their handcuffs. Remember kids in times of crisis, always look for the helper leather daddies.
0: We have to the, move the on to uh, basic instinct. So let's, uh, let's start. But the, anyway, well, let's, yeah, let's the okay. this.
1: Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up as much as I can. Fuck me. We really should just give him this its own episode. Um, <laughs> You've got characters who are bad composites of several of several characters. Um, Danny comes to mind, he's supposed mm-hmm. to be a rough approximation of Sylvia of Sylvia Rivera. Um, the characterization of Ed Murphy is regarded by those who actually knew him as being completely, absolutely wrong as he was much more charismatic and in the wake of the whole thing actually became a rather respected activist um the leader of the mattachine society i'm forgetting his name off the top of my head um people who knew him absolutely said no he was absolutely not the type who would have ever told a kid you can't be an astronomer because because you're gay um the whole fact that the story always there are several variances on it. The the common belief is, you know, it's almost a mantra at this point, a trans woman through the first brick at Stonewall. Um the, there have been those who have said trans women, there's some debate. There's some there have been some who have said that it was a butch lesbian. By the way, you know, queer women of all stripes, especially lesbians, get pretty much just shunted right out of right out of the movie. Practically no presence what's, whatsoever. Um, instead, it's our made up pretty lily white kid. This is a movie that was made because this was, this was Roland's image of a gay story that he could sell to straight audiences as opposed to something that was going to be artistic and insightful and and authentic. That's the whole reason this whole thing is centered on a pretty blonde buff white boy from Iowa, instead of anybody who was actually there, instead of the stories that actually emanated from this and took root root around us. So in other words, fuck this movie,
0: fuck Roland Emmerich, and God, fuck its very existence. So I'm going to say this one last thing and then I'm going right into basic instinct. I don't... Sometimes. I don't... Um... Discredit Roland Emmerich for taking a swing at bat with this. Look, it takes a lot of bravery to even talk about this sort of thing in a world that isn't really comfortable with wanting to hear about it, talk about it, acknowledge the system is currently passing, launch for the record. You, for the record,
1: you mentioned David Simon, that might be the first cis white man that I would absolutely
0: 100% trust to get this story right so where I was going with this was look if Roland Emmerich you know passionately wanted to talk about this subject matter and God bless him you know things like hey I I I feel like I have the chops to handle this look you know self delusion's a thing I'm not gonna sit here and shit all over Roland Emmerich for trying he's one of the few that has however if you're Roland Emmerich and you're sitting around with your producers and you're trying to figure out what the script for the thing is going to be and what your story is going to be so that you can talk about the Stonewall riots and you're going, well, we have to get white people. We have to get like normal white people to come see this. So we'll focus on a you know buff white blonde fella. Maybe then don't do a feature length motion picture. Maybe do a TV series. You know, because in TV, you don't have to do that. You can get it. I mean, look again, look at some of the stuff that's on peak TV, you know, in terms of representation and inclusion and and think to yourself, maybe this would have been a better fit there. Just as an example, there's a great limited series that's on Hulu called Mrs. America that talked about the uh, the debate between um, Betty Frieden and. Oh, gosh. or the other feminists at the, that, that time? Phyllis Slafly. Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It was one of my favorite watches of a year or two ago. Highly recommend. Um, would not have made a good feature-length motion picture. Made a great limited series on Hulu. You want to talk about something about the Stonewall riots, but you want to do it accurately, and you don't want to be forced. And because I sympathize with the idea of, that you're not gonna get a large, you're not gonna get a large audience of average Americans to come see your picture if it's not something they're comfortable with. Believe me, I get it. I'm the guy, you know, I'm on the studio side nine out of 10 times when it comes to making major motion pictures. Maybe then don't make this a major motion picture. If you're like, I want to talk about Stonewall, start looking at television. You know, you wanna look at like just as an example, because this is a really good one here. Um, obviously, there was a group of people that that thought, you know, what the Oklahoma race riots is something that we would like to talk about, something that we would like mm-hmm. to address. Hey, Watchmen's a thing. How about we do a Watchmen series that focuses on the Oklahoma race riots?
1: And Watch- Watchmen fucking nailed it. And yeah, Watchmen was
0: amazing. Watchmen was amazing. And if I, this was, a, and I and I don't want to go off on a tangent here. Just let me say what I'm going to say and blink twice at me. But when Alexis and I reviewed. Uh, the Watchmen TV series. At the same time, we were also talking about I think, about like the Mandalorian, and there was like there was a comparison conversation. Not that that was anywhere near the same subject matter, but she was like, "I love the Mandalorian," and I'm like, "It's not as good as Watchmen. Watchmen is superior show. Watchmen had gravitas, and like we just were like missing each other. And I was trying to explain to her like, Watch, you know, Mandalorian is wildly entertaining, but there's a, a chasm between wildly entertaining. In a, in the a show that talks about something with importance, but also nails the craft, and that is the point that I'm trying to make here is that you have so much more room to deal with a touchy subject like Stonewall in a manner that will be both entertaining and accurate, which is the biggest problem with this movie, is that he took a swing at bat at something that could reach a general audience on a subject matter that a general audience, 9 out of 10 times is going to summarily reject they're not coming to this movie this thing made you know, good, bad, or indifferent it made less than $300,000 on who knows what kind of a budget I mean, it's just there's an art to making film that makes money you know, decisions have to be made, and sometimes what starts out as a movie maybe should be a comic book, or a or a television show, or a, anything else. You know, so I, I, think, I, that's, I think that's that's I... the the thing about Stonewall. Uh, go ahead and have the last word, and then we'll move on to Basic Instinct.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I I kind of think of it as you want a movie that's going to be efficiently made, that's going to make money, that's going to come in at or below at or below budget Robert Rodriguez yeah first name that comes to my that comes to my mind you want some social commentary that's actually gonna stick to your ribs for a few days and maybe cause you to lose a little bit of necessary sleep at night last guy I would ever I would ever go to there's a litany of other filmmakers I that would be how fair. Robert
0: Emmerich Got this produced, like, like when you're when Roland Emmerich's like pitching this around and is trying to get funding for it. How does anyone who knows who he is and what he, the 2012 guy, the day after tomorrow, independent... 10,000 day. BC, that fucking guy, and it's like I want to talk about Stonewall, no asshole, no, go back to blowing up the earth. That's what you're good at. You want to do this? Be a producer on it and get like good peak TV people to do this. Like, I, I just. I just want to be in the room when he's, like, talking to, you know, people, talking to money people about it, and they're going, well, sure, we yeah, Independence Day? Sure. Independence Day, Stonewall. I see the link there. Uh, We're good with this. Here's money for you. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. All right. um, Let's move on to, speaking to get the fuck out of here, let's move on to Basic Instinct, which is a (laughs) (laughs) a 1992 neo-noir erotic thriller directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by Joe... uh, Of a hoven, uh, written by Joe Esterhaas. Uh, the film Esther follows Haas. San Francisco police detective, Nick Curran, who is played by Michael Douglas, who is investigating the brutal murder of a wealthy rock star. During the investigation, Curran becomes involved in a torrid and intense relationship with the prime suspect, Catherine Trammell, who is played by a young Sharon Stone, an enigmatic writer. Um, so we talked about this briefly. Uh, this movie was a wild success. It was had a $50 million budget. It made $352.9 million. It is most famous for the uh, vagina shot, the tastefully done vagina shot, uh, during the interrogation scene with Sharon Stone, where she crosses and uncrosses her legs. And you can just, just make out the fact that she's not wearing any underwear. It's fantastic. What you want to talk about a movie that in 1992 set the yep. world on fire in the United States, especially uh, all a titta just just just, just it and, and folks, wowed us. What, what, what folks, what
1: whatever you're drinking out there, for me <laughs> it happens to be uh Hapinda's Mochaccino milkshake porter from Burr Oaks Brewery in Columbia. Um. please raise a glass to the many, many fractured pause buttons and busted-ass <laughs> VCRs this movie that Paul Verhoeven will forever have on this his This country, hand. between Janet
0: Jackson's nipple and Sharon Stone's dark, v- shadowy vagina... That you can see for the splittest of seconds in this movie, and how aflame with rock and roll we were set. <laughs> and, you, and you know what? Don't what repressed, sto- what a sexually repressed country this is. <laughs> like, just the, the the stories
1: around that around that one shot. Yeah, are just just re- just real real briefly. I'll not get whipped up into the frenzy I was over I was over Stonewall. Pinky promise, uh, but the story goes was that Sharon was asked to doff her panties because she was wearing white panties on set that day, which if you're looking at it, white dress, white panties make sense because it was, it was playing havoc with the lighting. The camera was catching, the camera was catching some, was catching some glare. Um, depending on which side you believe, if you believe Verhoeven, uh, Sharon absolutely knew that the camera was going to be getting up close and personal with Revolva. If you believe Sharon, Verhoven assured her, "No, no, it'll be it'll be okay. We'll be careful with how we with how we shoot it. Nothing untoward." You have my you have my word. Movie comes out. Uh, they're both present for a screening of it. Sharon sees that, yes, her hoo-ha is indeed front and center and proceeds to immediately get up, belt Verhoeven, and then immediately leave the screening. And supposedly she has since then insisted, no, he absolutely knew what he was doing, but has forgiven him. She said there's no ill will between them, but she doesn't buy either number one his his narrative that she knew what was going down all along all or that it was an
0: accident consent is important and you do not put a woman's vagina up yeah. on a well a major motion picture without well, and I, would, hang on, hang well and, and I would hang on and i would this is I'm what sorry, i'm trying sorry. to make here sorry and and it, it just reminded me so on the one so I, i'm saying that because i'm i'm going to say something that almost sounds contradictory but bear with me okay he, it shouldn't have happened she didn't give him consent for that she, he no. he clearly lied to the woman, uh, or she wouldn't have belted him for it, so it shouldn't have happened. However, yeah, I, I, I'm making a distinction, because I've, I've watched this movie now a few times. Uh, I watched it when it came out. I've watched it recently for this review. I joked, like, you know, it, it is, like, the splittest of seconds in the darkest of areas. It is not like, on the other hand, and this, this is the point of contrast that I want to make, the people versus Larry Flint where there's a scene where she's like, where they're like, yes. "How much of my vagina do you want me to show here?" And they literally grab the woman's leg, spread her out, and be like, "Now shoot that fucking pussy!" Like, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like,
1: well, and it's I, <laughs> like, and I would also throw out there if you look at the way that few seconds of that of that scene is mm-hmm. edited. Yeah. No, it was absolutely intentional. He one hundred fucking right. percent like, knew exact. He and the editor knew exactly what the fuck they were
0: doing. Let's stop pretending though that it was like hardcore pornography. Like I'm not saying it no. should have happened. It absolutely shouldn't have. No. All right. So that is the big controversy with this movie Rel- relative mm. to what we're discussing. I'm gonna actually skip right to this so that we I make sure I say it because we kind of talked about it through the entire review of Stonewall. Um, I don't want to. Bear too much of this, but like I said, we're focusing on not so great queer cinema tonight. So here's the uh, controversy: the film generated controversy due to its graphic sexuality and violence, including a rape scene. Gay rights activists protested during the film, saying it followed a pattern of negative depictions of homosexuals in film. Mem- members of the lesbian and bisexual activist group Labia, L-A-B-I-A. Uh, protested against the film on its opening night. Others also picketed theaters to dissuade people from attending screenings, carrying signs that says "Kiss my ice pick." Brr. Hollywood promotes anti-gay violence, and Catherine did it. Save your money. The bisexual did it. <laughs> 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 ah! Verho- Sorry, Verhoeven himself defended the group's <laughs> right to protest but criticized the disruptions they caused, saying, "Fascism is not in raising your voice. The, the fascism is not in, is." in not accepting the no film critic roger ebert oh. film critic roger ebert mentioned the controversy in his review saying as to the allegedly offensive homosexual characters the movie's protesters might take note of the fact that this film's heterosexual starting with douglas is equally offensive i actually do love this line of defense like no no no, everyone's shitty in this film there's there's no like prejudice here um that's bro, that's something i would say Still, there is a point to be made about Hollywood's unremitting insistence on typecasting <laughs> homosexuals. Again, 1992. <laughs> Particularly lesbians as twisted and evil. Camille, I want to... Pat, Paglia. The, like, the briefest of pauses here. The, the briefest of pauses to point this out. Go back and listen to me, I talk about Deepwater, which is the Anna de Armas, Ben Affleck film about an ethically non-monogamous woman and a murdering husband um because I brought that point up then and that movie came out this particular year, where there's still there's still an undercurrent in Hollywood of depicting uh, ethically non-monogamous, polyamorous uh, LGBTQ people as crazy, as unhinged, as you know, a, a, put, Sober choices made by consenting adults are reframed as the stuff of lunatics. And there's never another side to that argument. Anna de Armas is portrayed as trash in Deepwater and a crazy person. And is only, like, the only reason why you as an audience member have any sympathy towards her is because Ben Affleck is killing motherfuckers in that movie. So it's like okay, you know like what? That, like that's like the only way to get across the finish line is if you have to make a character that's even worse, and the worst has to be murder. Okay,
1: you know what? Years after this movie came out, Camille Paglia tried to legitimize Nambla and openly endorsed lowering the age of consent to fourteen. So Camille can maybe ask her doctor
0: if shutting the fuck up is right for her. <laughs> Moving on, um, and so I just I just wanted to point that out, but like. In some ways, in representation and inclusion of uh, queer parties in cinema, we've made leaps and balance, and others still struggling. Um, Camille Paglia denounced gay activists and feminist protests against basic instinct and called Sharon Stone's performance one of the great performances by a woman in screen history. I mean, are we not uh, Sigourney Weaver, Linda Hamilton? They existed by this point. What the hell, madam? Um, praising her character as a great vamp figure, like Mona Lisa herself, like a pagan <laughs> goddess. The film was also criticized for glamorizing cigarette smoke. Who gives a shit? Um, since the release of the film, Stone alleged multiple times that, okay, you've already went into all of that. Um, all right, so that's the the controversial issues with uh, basic Instinct. But what about the craft, you're asking? Well, here we go. In San Francisco, homicide detective Nick Kern investigates the murder of retired rock star Johnny Boz, who has been stabbed to death with an ice pick during sex with a mysterious blonde woman. Nick's only suspect is Boz's girlfriend, crime novelist Catherine Trammell, who has written a novel that mirrors the crime. It is concluded that either Catherine is the murderer or someone is attempting to frame her. Catherine is uncooperative and taunting during the investigation, smoking and exposing herself during the interrogation. Arr. She passes a detector uh, test and is released. Nick, because that's how that works. Nick discovers Catherine has a history of befriending murderers, including her girlfriend, Roxy, who impulsively killed her two younger brothers when she was 16 years of age, like you do, and Hazel Dobkins, who killed her husband and children for no apparent reason. Hey, listen. uh, Never mind, I'm not going to make that joke. Nick, who accidentally shot two tourists while high on cocaine, like you do, during an undercover assignment, attends counseling sessions with police psychologist Dr. Beth Garner, with whom he has an on-and-off affair. Nick discovers that Catherine is basing the protagonist of her latest book on him, wherein his character is murdered after falling for the wrong woman. Nick suspects Catherine is, has bribed Lieutenant Marty Nielsen of the internal affairs for information uh, from Nick's psychiatric file and that Beth had previously given it to Nielsen after he threatened to recommend Nick's termination. Nick assaults Nielsen in his office and later becomes a prime suspect when Nielsen is killed. Nick suspects Catherine, and when his behavior deteriorates, he is put on leave. Nick and Catherine begin a torrid affair, simply torrid with the air of a cat and mouse game. Nick arrives at the club and witnesses Catherine doing cocaine with Roxy and another man. Nick and Catherine dance and make out and are later observed by Roxy having violent sex in Catherine's bed. Like you do. Catherine ties Nick to the headboard with a white silk scarf, just as Boz was tied by the mysterious blonde, but does not kill him. Roxy jealous of Nick attempts to run him over with, hit that motherfucker with a car. Uh, but dies when the car crashes. Catherine grieves over Roxy's death and Nick tells uh, Nick about, sorry, Roxy's death and tells Nick about a previous lesbian encounter at college that went awry. She claims that the girl became obsessed with her, causing Nick to believe that Catherine may not have killed Boz. Nick identifies the girl as Beth, who acknowledges the encounter, but she claims it was Catherine who became obsessed. Additionally, Nick discovers that a college professor of Beth and Catherine's was also killed with a nice pick in an unsolved homicide and that the events inspired one of Catherine's early novels. Nick comes across the final pages of Catherine's book in which the fictional detective finds his partner in an elevator. Catherine then breaks off the affair, causing Nick to become upset and suspicious. Nick later meets his partner, Gus Morin, who has arranged to meet with Catherine's college roommate in an office building, hoping to reveal what really went on between Catherine and Beth. As Nick waits in the car, Gus is stabbed to death with an ice pick in the elevator. Recalling the last pages of Catherine's book, Nick runs into the building, only to find Gus's body in a manner similar to the scene described. Beth unexpectedly arrives and explains she received a message to meet Gus. Nick suspects Beth has murdered Gus and, believing she is reaching out for a gun, shoots her, but discovers that Beth was only fiddling with an ornament on her keychain evidence collected at the scene and in beth's apartment implicates her as the killer of buzz nielsen morin and her own husband along with collections of photos and newspapers clippings of katherine that imply an obsession with her nick is left confused and dejected he returns to his apartment where katherine meets him she explains her reluctance to commit to him as people she cares about keep dying but then the two have sex like you do because that solves all your problems and they discuss the future and ice pick is revealed to be under the bed dun 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 you know Here's what I'll tell you about this movie. In terms of pulpy entertainment, it's great. You know, Michael Douglas is and Sharon Stone have great sexual chemistry. It's naughty, it's alluring, it's entertaining. A little overlong. Um, I, I found the movie to be a bit interminable at times. Uh, yeah, a little over two hours. There, there, there's some editing that could have shaved this down to make it a little bit more palatable, but I feel like I say that with a lot of films. The more I say it, I can just you picture people listening to me going, you think everything's too long. What do you just watch cartoons? Yeah. Um, but I'm um, sorry. I either, I either want 90 minutes or three hours. There's no in between. Um, so I let me say this. I, I don't want to get into the sort of nuts and bolts. Nothing works this way kind of stuff. Because one, that's Robert's gimmick. Two. That's not what they, they weren't doing the wire here. This isn't, you know, law and order. This was, this was supposed to be pulpy crime noir. This was supposed to be Mm -hmm. sexy and tawdry. None, no. The fact that Michael Douglas is sleeping with an active murder witness and doesn't get his badge taken away and him thrown in jail. Sure. Just accept this fiction, this mysterious universe where that could happen. And let's just enjoy the naughty picture. Um, so like, I don't have a lot to say about the craft elements because I think it's wild. I, I, if you, if you can f- forgive the movie for its poor depiction of the LGBTQ community and you can get past the lack of consent for showing Sharon, va- Sharon, Stone's vagina on screen, it's, it's just a great entertaining movie. There's not a whole lot else to say about it in terms of issues with craft. Michael Douglas gives a fine performance. Sharon Stone is great. The I think it keeps you guessing as far as the mystery goes, um, to who the killer might be, which is the you know the art of a great mystery movie. Uh, yeah. Some of the other performances are okay. At, you know the, I, I, once you get past Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone, like I said, the rest of the, the supporting cast, no one's bad. Everyone's just sort of okay to good. Um, <laughs> So, is, so if I have to find a criticism, it's maybe that. There's a couple of scenes that the dialogue is so... It's like, if you're an average movie person, it's not going to bother you. If you're looking for, like, criticism, I'm watching some of the performances and some of the dialogue, and I'm like, no human talks that way. And, you know, it's just mm. like, I think it's Gus screaming at Michael Douglas, things like, oh, how could you do it? What are you doing? You know, <laughs> just rolling in the street. <laughs> All right. <I'm> just <laughs> me personally, I had a few eye roll moments. But I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna take the joy of this movie away from people who just don't give a shit. So, mm-hmm. uh, your witness, sir. Well, let's touch on that little Roger Ebert remark
1: because, frankly, that encapsulates a whole lot of the problem. Of the problem here. Oh, there's unhinged straight people in the movie too. Well, fuck you very much, Robert, but here's the difference. Or Roger, I'm sorry, not Robert. I I apologize to Mr. Winfrey. I'm going half cornet here. Um, And that's about as far cornet as I desire to go. Um, Fuck you very much, Roger, because the problem is straight people haven't had to deal with their identity their mannerisms, their coding being conspicuously and constantly associated for generations with being monsters, killers, predators, and villains. When a straight person is depicted as being unhinged, the audience doesn't develop over time a kind of association between straight people And being and predators, predators, villains, psychopaths, because that's what they've seen in movies. That doesn't happen. Straight characters don't end, unhinged straight characters don't have the problem of being necessarily pigeonholed into just that specific type. The way queer people had been up to that point and continue to be for. That for, you know, hell, I would say right up to today, it's not as common, but yeah, fuck sure still happens. There's a huge fucking difference. It's not equal. That's not an egalitarian statement. Fuck you very much, Roger. Now, and that's just the thing, is the fact that craft-wise, this is an outstanding movie. I think it was wonderfully written. I think the chemistry between Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone absolutely sizzles right off the screen. Ask a um, you question.
0: Do you think the movie is a bit redundant? I, I and I asked that because it absolutely I is. Yeah, there's a lot of rinse repeat here. There's a lot of Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone seemingly having the same conversation over and over again. Like I said, Constantly. I think yes. there, there's an edit of this movie that just sticks to the mystery and not some of the boring scenes between michael douglas and sharon mm-hmm. stone which they work because those two have a lot of sexual chemistry and there's a lot of sex mm-hmm. happening and sex is fun to watch so i've been told mm-hmm. um so, <laughs> so uh so that so that's why it works that's why people i accept it when i was watching this with a critical eye i'm like wow they could have cut a lot of those scenes. if i heard michael douglas say one more time like get married, raise Rugrats, have lots of whatever the stupid line is that he says two and three times in the movie. I just wanted to punch him, myself, and anyone that got in my way right in the throat. It was sick. Well, like come on, well, like that, there's no the like almost no rest- and this is very common of like Paul Verhoeven. I think almost no restraint, like not a willingness to no. kill his own babies, you know, and sort no. of a and sort of a like a smirking like self appreciation for aren't I clever? Like no, you're fucking not. You you and Roland Emmerich should go yeah. bowling, Paul. Alright, I'll let you finish. Th- up. The,
1: does the dialogue does the dialogue sound like it could have been a, a throwaway issue of Sin of Sin City? Yeah, sure. But sure. again, it helps that Michael Douglas, it turns out, plays fantastically unhinged.
0: Oh my um, god, have you ever seen Falling Down?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Best fucking movie ever. Um, Sharon Stone I will go out on a limb and say has never gotten her due for what an outstanding actress she
0: is. You don't is. think she got received high um, praise for Casino?
1: But the thing is, I think she deserved praise before that. Okay. I think, I think she deserved heaps of praise before that, but unfortunately, thanks to this movie... She's, she's remembered just, for she's remembered for one thing and one thing. She's just remembered yeah. for being for being a body when the truth is
0: she truly is an
1: excellent. excellent you know, what she, you know what she should have gotten
0: an Oscar for in really what the, the, the window into the brilliant uh artistic mind of Sharon Stone? Catwoman. What's that? Catwoman.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um and, I might want you know, to use that clip for TikTok later. I'm not giving myself <laughs> applause, because every time I do, I get kicked off a TikTok for it. Like Of all but... the music I've ever used in this show, that's the one that gets me every time. Moving on. Go ahead.
1: But, again, everything else about the movie is wonderful. It's a bit of an overly long cat-and-mouse detective story, but it's one that I was still glued to virtually the, virtually the entire time. But
0: so much of it oh, all. so Go much ahead.
1: of it
0: oh, what <laughs> well f- finish your point but i but to move this to end this discussion and then move it on to but i'm a cheerleader i have one question for you that i want you to answer really quickly so so oh, do your thing. Uh, okay okay
1: the last thing
0: the last thing is it's an excellent movie but
1: yes it's not that it does necessarily anything original or particularly egregious in terms of in terms of you know stale queer coding as coding as villains but it's the fact that it's just one more tiresome instance of it when it when it when it really didn't add anything
0: in dis- in discussions of movies that have poor representation of the LB- lgbtq community um mm. the question that has to be asked is did does this hurt the community or is this just mm. a this, or is this just a poor representation? There is a difference. It's subtle, but there is a difference. There's there's a movie, there's, there's a piece of art that when you put it out there, actively sets the progression of rights and acceptance and inclusion of the LGBT community back years. And then there's mm-hmm. just, it's a shitty piece of art. It, it didn't affect the community at large. It's just kind of, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, when Jason and I were talking about black exploitation, you know, Soul Plane didn't set black rights back 20 years. Soul Plane was just dumb. You know, Pootie Tang, as funny as it is, didn't set the black community back 20 years. It was just dumb and funny. Um My question about Basic Instinct, as far as its placement in the history of queer cinema, did this set... The movement back at all, or was it just a bad representation of the community? In your opinion, I don't
1: think it. I don't think it said anything back. If you want to look at a movie that I think very, very much so did that and deserves its place on the ash heap, came out around the same time to Ace Ventura: A Pet Detective. Yeah, I've I heard that argument to, too. I don't. I don't fucking need to ex need to explain why. No. and fuck you if you disagree. Um. <laughs> But as far as as far as did it really set anything anything back? I mean, no. The, it's just a, it's just obnoxious.
0: It's one of those things where, like, you know, somebody petitions a congressman saying, "Hey, we need to pass some of these laws to help the progression of queer rights," and then that same politician goes, "Yeah, but basic instinct." You know, if that happens, the answer is yes. If it didn't okay. happen, the answer is no. Better better
1: example since it got so much of the discussion of trans experiences wrong, you know, like actually in its dialogue, actually in the movie, in the text, Silence of the Lambs okay. was arguably, I think closer to setting back queer representation for its particular targeted stripes of the rainbow than basic it than basic instinct was because yeah basic instinct was just kind of lazy in that again the queer element i didn't feel it necessarily added anything to the characterization except making it something that very conspicuously was used to set the killer set the killer apart and draw them in a bold out in a bold
0: outline. It, whereas. The same thing where from 1992 to 2022, we're still dealing with the idea of all you have to do to create a monster is make them gay. Yeah. <laughs> make them yeah. part of the LGBT. That's monster yeah. enough because those people are inherently crazy, is seemingly yeah. the common yeah. belief among people yeah. who write these movies. is kind well, of yeah. a shame because I know people in this community, they're not all insane. It's funny. Although, I mean, well, it's, it's, exactly. And, and here's the and thing: like, mental illness doesn't know a, a, a doesn't know a group. Mental illness is as you know far and wide among straight people as it is among the mm-hmm. LGBTQ community. So to 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 always go back to yeah, but the LGBTQ community has this huge mental mental illness component. It, it's it's like you're ignoring a very plain fact that mental illness knows no prejudice it's, it's everywhere well exactly and
1: you just you just hit the nail on the head and that's why I draw the comparison to silence of the lambs mm-hmm. because in silence of the lambs it's explicitly a plot point that right. being denied gender reassignment surgery mm-hmm. made this made this you know trans woman into a into a killer So hence, they are a monster pretty explicitly according to the text, not the subtext, not paratext, but the fucking text, specifically because they are trans. And the problem is, yes, intelligent people can see through that and draw their own conclusions. That's the thing. But the problem is, then you get fuckers who have never known a queer person in their life who are going to see Ace Ventura and Silence of the Lambs? And all of a sudden, if it's if we're talking about Ace Ventura, okay,
0: trans people become jokes to them. Yeah, but even in even in Ace Ventura, that it's depicted as a trans person is a monster. You know, a trans a trans person is a rapist. A trans person is an insane person. A trans person is, you know, is gross. And, it, it you know, yes. your, your, your conversation here about Ace Ventura de- dehumanizing the trans population, I think is a valid one. Um, yeah. And, and it is, oh, it it's definitely, I, I don't want to spend too much longer on this because we got to get to but I'm a cheerleader. And I no, also want to be no, no. honest, but it, it is a worthy and almost to the point where we, we might want to come back and talk about it at, on a separate, on a separate day. By all means. Um, the because there are they, there's there's la- there's laughing at your your group the way like a Pootie Tang does, just as a point of comparison. I mean, that's a Chris Rock movie. And I made this, I made this point when Jason and I talk about it. You know, there there's the sort of armchair flippant criticism of Pudi Tang, like, oh Jesus Christ, this makes black people look not great. Except that it was a very black movie. It was black made, it was black written. Everything about it was that oh. group of people kind of looking at some of the elements of their own culture and going. Some of this shit's dumb, and we're gonna make fun of it ourselves. Which, I, yay, bravo! Like, stop being so goddamn sensitive, people of Earth, okay. and let learn to Steve. laugh at yourselves. Whereas, whereas the thing with with Ace Ventura, that's very much a group of people with authority, like going out of their way to laugh at a portion of the queer community and dehumanize them, and almost giving permission for the rest of the world. To like beat on those people and can, you know, and perpetuate perpetuate the violence of dehumanization, which is not, Mm -hmm. which is obviously not something that I would particularly agree with. And I can see why you'd be angry about it.
1: Well, that's, and that's the thing is, okay, you're talking, you're talking about Pootie Tang. There's always this talking comedy about punching, you know, as, as in who are your jokes really taking, taking aim at? Pootie Tang, Pootie Tang was a sideways punch. That's a character mm-hmm. that originated on the fucking Chris Rock show. Right. I'm not no, you know what? I'm not going to dog on Chris Rock for on Chris Rock for that. I could, some shit could be said about Chris Rock and it would be valid, but that was something that he signed off on that every other black talent in that talent in that movie um from from Wanda, Wanda Sykes. Sykes onward.
0: Yeah. yeah, signed.
1: Yeah, signed off. Signed off on. I got no beef with mm-hmm. Pooty Tang. I refuse to believe that a trans that there was a trans woman in that writing room, or among the producers, or among the studio executives, or anyone or anyone else who saw that final sequence of Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, and went, Yeah, okay.
0: So maybe teach po- Sean,
1: had, maybe maybe teach someone how to tuck it back properly because yikes on yikes, But yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's passable.
0: That'd so ra- rounding this back to the original question, so basic instinct doesn't rise to that level of dehumanizing no. an entire population of people. It's just no. kind of, as you said, I think your first statement is the best statement. I'm like, it's just lazy. It's just, eh, yeah. we're not taking. We're we're, it, we're more concerned with telling a pulpy a pulpy mystery story than we are with. You know, proper representation of the community. No one it's, gave a it's, shit.
1: It's it's really, it's it's this is the best you could come up with.
0: Sure. All right, let's move on. Um, but I'm a cheerleader. And again, we were, we were originally Naked Lunch, because I have actually never seen Naked Lunch, and I want to. It isn't streaming. Between that and Pool Hall Junkies, can we not get these movies on streaming services, people? What the hell? <laughs> if I have to tell one more person that Pool Hall Junkies is one of my favorite movies, and you can't find the fucking thing anywhere. Why? Is it is, is it racism against Ricky Schroeder? Why? Why can't I get this movie on a streaming service? Um, And Naked Lunch. So instead, we swapped it out for, but I'm a cheerleader which is a 1999 American satirical romantic teen comedy directed by Jamie Babette uh, and written by Brian Wayne Peterson. Natasha Leone of Orange is the New Black fame stars as Megan Bloomfield, a high school cheerleader whose parents send her to a residential inpatient conversion therapy camp to cure her lesbianism like you do. The film has garnered a cult following. Uh, it had a $1 million budget. It barely was profitable. I mean, like burly uh with a 2.6 million dollar uh box office so the controversy here is an interesting one because mm-hmm. the con- because this is and it stands out from the other two films that we discussed where the community was not in love with stonewall or basic instinct um but obviously you know stonewall was no one likes stonewall but basic instinct gets mm-hmm. a lot of high praise for it being a well-crafted movie issues with the community aside Um, but I'm a cheerleader has an interesting thing because it's split. Whereas the craft elements were not highly regarded. Like this was a movie where despite it's purposeful campiness, uh, there's a lot of negative criticism by the, uh, by professional critics, but the queer community has adopted it and has defended it and said that there are great things about this movie that speak to the culture and, um, and should Mm -hmm. be talked about and praised. So I think it's. I think for that reason alone, it was worthy enough discussion. Also, currently available to stream, which made it you know easier to watch. Um, initial mainstream critical response to "But I'm a Cheerleader" was mostly negative. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an approval rating of forty-one percent. Um, uh, reviews from gay media were positive. The film has undergone a critical assessment over time, being analyzed in recent times as deliberately satirical and campy take on the subject matter. Feminist website Auto Straddle declared the film to be the number one on a list of 100 best lesbian movies of all time in 2015. After Ellen.com named it one of the best five lesbian movies ever made, the site had considered the movie story predictable and character stereotypical in its initial 2007 review. Curve called the film an incredible comedy that had redefined lesbian film. Sean, before I get into the plot, I want to ask you a kind of a direct question here. Um, Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of Saved. Um. Now, save. Deals yes. With, okay. So yes. you're with me on this because Saved save doesn't necessarily deal with queer conversion therapy. Obviously. It, yeah. It, yes, it does. It. it Whatever. Okay. Be that's fine. Then correct me if I'm wrong. But what I remember about saved was the sort of editorializing of religious zealotry and sort of misinterpretation of um, strict religious constructionism sort of taking it all to task in a very comedic way. Um mm. what am I what have I forgotten about save that that it does deal with conversion uh, therapy. Okay, now I'll I'll pull back just a little bit because the
1: conversion therapy is not a a big constantly present element of it. But um uh the lead character, forgive me, I forget her name, Jenna Malone's mm-hmm. boyfriend at the start of the movie, the figure skater. Yeah. Uh, He gets shipped off to a conversion camp that we're not really calling a conversion camp. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he's not really present for the rest of the movie until apparently at the end, he and his boyfriend stage an uprising escape and steal the van because they want to come back because they want to come back and go to prom. Um, But it's, it's a plot point. But yeah. just
0: not a very big one. It's not the focus of the movie, where 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 it is the focus no, of. But no, I'm a cheerleader. In any case, no. both are both are satirical, both are campy, yeah. both are editorializing about you know the root of a lot of problems we have in this country, which is again strict religious yeah. constructionism and zealotry uh, as a guiding principle for law, um, behavior modification, etc. Uh, so when I was watching, but I'm a cheerleader and I've seen it before it was many, many years ago. I just kept getting saved vibes and and I kind of want to go back and watch save now because I think I prefer that movie to this one, but you know, to each his own. In any case, uh, here's the plot. 17 year old Megan Bloomfield is a happy high school senior who loves cheerleading and is dating Jared, a football player. She does not enjoy kissing Jared and prefers looking at her fellow cheerleaders. This combined with Megan's interest in vegetarianism and Melissa Etheridge. <laughs> Lead her. I can see why some people have an issue with this. Lead her family and friends to suspect she is a lesbian like you do. Uh, With the help of ex-gay Mike, uh, they surprise her with an intervention. Megan is then set to True Directions a conversion therapy camp which uses a five-step program to convert its campers to heterosexuality. Over the course of the program, Megan becomes friends with another girl at the camp, Graham, who's played by Clea Duvall, who reminded me of Ali Sheedy. Um though more comfortable with in her sexuality than megan graham was forced to attend the camp at the risk of being disowned by her family at true directions megan meets founder and strict disciplinarian mary brown along with her heterosexual son rock rock is seen throughout the film to be in fact overtly homosexual and makes multiple sexual overtures towards mike and milk in the male campers um according to the film's backstory mary started true directions after her husband left her for another man Megan meets a group of fellow young people trying to cure themselves of their homosexuality. After being prompted by the others, Megan agrees that she is a lesbian. The fact is at odds with her traditional religious upbringing and distresses her, so she puts every effort into becoming heterosexual. Early on in her stay, Megan discovers two boys, Dolph and Clayton, making out. She panics and screams. On their discovery by Mike, Dolph is made to leave and Clayton is punished with isolation, literally being sent to the doghouse. The camp's kids are encouraged to rebel against Mary by two of her former students, ex-ex-gays, Larry and Lloyd, who take the campers to a local gay bar where Graham and Megan's relationship develops into a romance. When Mary discovers the trip, she makes them all picket Larry and Lloyd's house. Megan and Graham sneak away one night and begin to fall in love. When When Mary finds out Megan, now at ease with her sexuality, is unrepentant and made to leave. Disowned by her family and homeless, she goes to stay with Larry and Lloyd. Graham, afraid to defy her father, remains at the camp. Megan and Dolph, who is now also living with Larry and Lloyd, plan to win back Graham and Clayton. Megan and Dolph infiltrate the graduation ceremony where Dolph coaxes Clayton away. Megan entreats Graham to join them as well, but Graham declines. Megan then performs a cheer for Graham, declaring her love and winning her over. They drive off with Dolph and Clayton. The final scene shows Megan's parents attending a P flag meeting to come to terms with their daughter's homosexuality. All right, Sean, take it away. Okay,
1: so. Let me just say I kind of don't mind the stereotypes mm-hmm. um e- even the whole Melissa Etheridge and veganism and veganism thing it's the it's the kind of thing that we among the community would maybe joke about a little bit amongst our amongst ourselves and just that there's something I can't quite put my finger on about the way the jokes were constructed that made me really not mind that. Um, I, I guess part of the mystery for me is I don't know if this was written by a queer person or not. I don't know if it was. You might be able to look that up
0: while I'm kind of running down my thoughts here. The um, screenplay scene- is by. Hang on. The screenplay is by uh, Brian Wayne Peterson, who wrote Smallville, Beauty and the Beast, Salem Genius, and The Hot <laughs> Zone. Um. Uh, other ones are Under the Doom. And uh, this biography related to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender history or culture is a stub. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, uh, go ahead. It, it
1: just it kind of feels like something that maybe has at least a little bit. Of the heart of something that that could have come from an LGBT creator. Um, I don't even mind the the slightly stock
0: characters. Okay. Uh, Brian Wayne Peterson is gay.
1: Okay. Uh, that, that, okay. See? That, that kind of explains a little bit.
0: Actually, uh, um, r- real quick. Uh, Peterson used his experience for the story, which is about a group of teenagers who attend conversion therapy camp. He is gay okay. himself and had experience. And had experience with conversion therapy while working at a prison clinic for sex offenders. Oh, really? In 1999, okay, Variety named him one of the 10 screenwriters to watch. There you go. Okay, see, I don't know. That kind of sways my opinion a little bit. And I'll
1: get to that in a moment. But I, I didn't mind the what felt at first, at first glance, like the kind of stock characters, because they didn't feel necessarily lazy. Mm-hmm did yes they fit stereotypes but they also felt relatable like i have known plenty plenty of gay folks um who who kind of who kind of fit all of fit all of these they they kind of bear all of these earmarks um nuanced no obviously not this this wasn't this wasn't safe
0: how much satire I, I want to jump in here real quick, look at the vast uh, array of Mel Brooks films that are out there or Zucker brother films or Seth MacFarlane right. pieces. Right. And f- you find me the one that's subtle. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and, you know, as uh, even I, I got curious and I kind of looked at the YouTube comments as I watched mm-hmm. this and just one after another after another was people who either saw themselves or a significant other or an ex or a friend or somebody Mm -hmm. in those characters or, or heard a little bit of themselves in one of those lines. I can't not love a movie that conveys that the only part that really got to me. I, I didn't even mind the camp either. It is what I would expect from a two, From a queer comedy made in the year of our clusterfuck 2000. But what got me was just at first being a little bit squirmy about... "Eh, we're, we're, We're having fun, wacky gay times at a conversion camp. Because now, publicly, it's a little more widely known what the cost of this utter quackery is to actual human lives. But I guess I'm seeing it a little bit differently knowing that this is inspired by the experience of somebody who actually lived it.
0: So I want to relate this back to the Roland Emmerich thing about sometimes you have a story in your heart that you want to tell but it's about that yeah. you have to somehow connect to your audience. You have to find your audience for it. And if you want to tell a story about gay conversion, but the story that you want to tell is, hey, gay conversion's is bad. Um, it hurts people. It's, it's not great. And it's like, okay, there's many different ways you can do that. You can take it seriously. You can do it satirically. You can make a musical out of it. You can do anything. Um, and here's what I'll tell you. Um, when I listen to my dad talk about very valid issues that he has a very pointed opinion about, and I believe him to be correct, the way in which he does it is off-putting. And I've brought this up before. I've talked about this with Robert. I've talked about this with a few people where arguing with my dad, his opinion on, say, healthcare, uh, universal healthcare, may be the right one, but he's such an ass about it that I don't want to listen to him anymore. And And it tends to color my opinion of then universal healthcare just as an example. To where I might have been convinced that what he was saying was the right thing but he's such a douchebag about it that I have now stopped listening and he's lost me as a potential convert and and I look about uh, like a movie like but I'm a cheerleader kind of the same way there was there's a way to there's a way to translate the material to an audience to where they're who, who are gonna be initially off put by it anyway and I think vast numbers Um and before, because I'm not sure, just kind of watching you on camera. What I'm trying to say is, I think they took the right approach with, but I'm a cheerleader. Because you win more people with honey than you do vinegar. And if you come across as too preachy, you lose people that were on the fence who don't want to be preached at. As I think we all know now, having watched the national conversation over the last 20 years. If you come at people, I, as much as I love David Simon, and I, I worship at the altar of David Simon, all things the wire and the deuce and the you know in the corner and treme. Um, this last one we 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 own this city gets a little too preachy. And while his and while his point is a good one and valid, I can see where people would be like, all right, enough, we get it. Fuck, leave me alone about it. About the I, cops already. And and that's what and so you- I'm relating that back to, but I'm a cheerleader because I because again if you go at people hard with this you'll lose them if you present it in this sort of funny quirky satirical way you're going to reach more people and they'll be more likely to listen okay but i think i but i think i get this and i think that
1: mm-hmm. what i get is a key essence of queer cinema when it is at its best mm. critics and straight people it wasn't made for you. This was... Can I I jump in
0: on that point? Every time someone says this wasn't made for you, you've already ended the discussion, and is this movie not made for discussion, for change? Or is it just purely an entertainment piece? Okay, hear me out. Because,
1: again, I'm going to invoke Chris Rock a little bit here because he made this point way back in his first book, Rock This, and it always stuck with me and it's the way in which hip-hop and country music are alike they're made for someone very specific you can enjoy it if you do, that's fine but your complaints don't mean much. And it's because this is a gay man who made a gay romantic comedy straight from his heart to the gay hearts of other gays in a language that everybody there could easily understand. Just something that was in our our very own dialect. And that's why it kind of spoke to us most and it maybe didn't quite hit as directly with everybody else. Because in this case, yeah, it was probably in some sense kind of a niche passion project. Because he was making it, I think, with one very specific viewer in mind. So if anybody else liked it, that's that's great. But I imagine that he probably looks at the countless more comments and reviews like the one I read where queer people in an age where tokenism still very much ruled entertainment and queer rep hadn't come quite to the point that it's at right now, We're able to finally look at a movie and say, and, and and see themselves, and hear themselves, and see their relationships, and their upbringing. And is it cheesy? Yes. Is it campy? Yes. Is camp, should camp absolutely be on the gay periodic table?
0: Fuck yes! I think some of the best, most like politically astute points are made with camp and satire. That's the point that I'm making. Don't misunderstand me. I think, given all of the choices for how to present your argument about how gay conversion is camps are bad, doing Mm. it this way was probably the best choice. I don't know if another way of doing this would have worked nearly as well. That was what I was trying to say. Um, it, it's all in it's all in how you choose to put your message forward they chose camp and satire mm-hmm. and I think it works 100 percent um mm-hmm. that seems to have been lost on a lot of the critics just kind of doing doing yeah. analysis of the criticism I, I it was almost like they watched this and took it at face value and go, well this is silly and therefore silly and silly is bad therefore the movie is bad i'm like you've that's like watching I just watched spaceballs with Jonas the other day and that's like watching spaceballs and going huh this is this is all too very silly therefore it's bad like you would never say that about Spaceballs. the fact that it is silly is what makes it good you know history sorry, part-
1: sorry y'all um, queer love hits a little bit different
0: you know the idea that just because something is silly and over the top makes it an invalid criticism of a a social issue or political point of view i'm like no it doesn't work that way the, this is, that's that's the, almost the purpose of satire You know, is to take the piss out of a social or political issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Just some elements about the craft, so that we can wrap up. Uh, Natasha Lyonne is really funny in this. Um, She was great in Orange. She's great in Orange is the New Black. We loved her in that one. Sean and I reviewed a whole bunch of seasons of that. Um, She's great, like the opening scene of her kissing the boyfriend, but looking at the (laughs) the, the sort of a male gaze thing with the other cheerleaders, and just the, the sort of non plus kissing that she does. That's all great. She's got really good chemistry with Clea Duval. Um I I just mm. it's it's a, it's a quiet movie at times. Um I almost think like it might have benefited from a, a a little more silliness. It's 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 a bit dry in places, but I think overall, but I'm a cheerleader pretty well works. Um I don't have any yeah. other major mm-hmm. craft issues with it in terms of messaging. Uh I mean, I sometimes struggle with a movie where the, where yes, there is a clear perspective, but there is no other side of the argument, and I guess it would be it gets kind of like you know like, like what's the other side of the argument of Schindler's List? There isn't one, not a valid one at least. Um, yeah. you know, but it would have been nice. I don't know. Sometimes I wish in a movie where you, you where you do have a clear perspective and an agenda that someone would take the time and energy to at least consider what the other point of view is, good, bad, or indifferent. Like, the other side just gets made to look like a monster. And look, in many cases, it's right to make them look like a monster because they're being monstrous. But monsters have an opinion. Monsters have a point of view. Monsters have beliefs and practices. Sometimes it would be nice to see those things in a movie like this so that at least you go, okay, you're wrong, but at least I understand where you're coming from. Because that's, to me, that's the heart of the conversation. It's something lost, I think, in in, in the... Discourse, you know, you, you you try to talk with people on Twitter and it's just people screaming at one another and there is no trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Sean, you and I don't always agree. And in the vast history of our, our 10 year friendship, um, you and I have had plenty of arguments, oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> personal yeah. and
0: cultural. And <laughs> but I've always taken the time to understand where you were coming from. And I think you have, you know, with me as well to at least say, you know, mm-hmm. I don't agree with what you're saying, but I hear I hear the sure. point of view you're coming sure. from. Robert and I have had some knockdown, dragout fights on, on Damn You Hollywood.
1: Mm-hmm. But over the
0: course of 10 years, I can see where he's coming from, whether or not I agree with it or not. You know, mm-hmm. over you know, silly shit like Ant Man and the Wasp. <laughs> <You know>? Like, <laughs> um, I mean, and nobody ever argues with Jesse because Jesse, I, I, I said he was the living embodiment of pot smoke tonight on a separate podcast. He's... What? <laughs> He's he's just Jesse is like just the chillest person ever, but even he and yeah. I, he, but even he and I have had our disagreements over things, just seeing things from different points of view, and we always go, okay, I hear what you're saying, but here's what I'm mm-hmm. saying, and and you know, and we go, okay, well, that's where we're coming from with this, and we just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, film is a great place to have discourse. Mm-hmm. Film is sometimes not having discourse. Film is having lobbying, proselytization um which i'm not a huge fan of and that's the final word i have to say about but i'm a cheerleader but i'm a cheerleader speaks for the trees you know it says like hey you know gay being gay is not a condition it is a it, it is a way of being it is deeply embedded in your dna Um, And even if it's not, it's there now. And so that's just life. You have to live with it. As I tell my children, it doesn't really matter why Mm -hmm. you're gay. It's just that the gays exist in the world and you have to live with them. You have Mm -hmm. have to respect them. You have to share the earth with them. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I do wish, I I wish for more discourse in film and less lobbying. And I'll give you the final word.
1: Well, first off, I would like to point out that when I position my head just like this with the graphic where it is, it looks like I have an alfalfa alpha, cowlick.
0: <laughs> All right. Look at that.
1: Look at that. <laughs> I almost don't want to move my head now. But, okay, that's, that's going to hurt my neck after a while. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I see where you're coming from, and I don't think that this ever really necessarily veers into proselytization um i will say that it's guilty of yeah being the one that kind of that kind of turns hollywood's up to that point typical fuckery on his head and reduces the religious zealots to caricatures more than the queer folks um but I guess I'm willing to be a little bit more forgiving because, yeah, I kind of go <laughs> nah. By the by, this point, y'all had it coming. <laughs> just just bite down on the mouth guard and take the and take the punch, okay? Um, but I will say this: all the other performances were wonderful, especially when you consider that Clea Duval, that Clea Duval, bless her, was actually still closeted at the time um natasha leone absolute treat um my salute to dante prince zuko bosco <laughs> um in a delightful turn as Dolph. uh yeah I, I i started off this review kind of on the fence about it but now kind of the more i've ruminated on it the more i've, I've kind of let myself think and digest it in terms of both when it came out and what it's really going for? No, no, I I like it. And if you're out there and if you and if you see it and you like it because you see a little bit of yourself in it, then more power to you. I I totally get it. Um, if you're looking for something that is a little bit more nuanced, a little more thoughtful, even a little more, dare I say, meditative, uh, we mentioned Saved. That would probably be the better pick. It's It doesn't lean as hard overtly into the LGBTQ themes, but they are certainly there. I mean, we're talking about one of Michael Stipe's babies. I don't know how it couldn't be. Um, but <clears throat> no, um, that's, um, that, that's, that's, a pretty good roundup tonight. Um, one absolute appalling disappointment, <laughs> uh, one movie that is actually really pretty damn good. If you put craft in a vacuum and set aside, it's horrendously lazy representation. And one that is, and I found all, almost bafflingly
0: enjoyable. So I would I would say that's a pretty good trio. All right. Well, Sean, you'll be back on a special edition of Damn You Hollywood. It'll just be you and I. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking at two streaming movies that are firmly in the LGBTQ milieu. Uh, Fire mm-hmm. Island on Hulu, which actually comes out June 3rd. And Master on Amazon Prime. Yep. Both listed on the Wikipedia page that I was checking for LGBTQ films in the year of our Lord 2022. And then we're going to skip a couple of weeks and we're going to end the month with uh, the good of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, a triple feature of Benedetta, Brokeback Mountain, and my own Private Idaho. And uh, that will be our three shows that we're doing to celebrate Pride Month here on the Rattle Broadcasting mm-hmm. Network. Uh, in the meantime, in between time, Uh, we, tonight, uh, depending on whenever I decide to put this up, uh, we'll be reviewing, as we mentioned before, the new David Simon jam. We own this city based on the novel, uh, based on the nonfiction book, rather. Um, we've got a review of AEW double or nothing. Neil from movies that don't suck and some that do was on there. He's great. He's so funny. Um, you know, I, I I am, I don't know if everyone knows this or not. I'm known for giving people some shit. I've got some opinions. Sometimes opinions people don't agree with, and I say them loud and proud. Neil gave me a ration of shit today that was so funny. I gave him a round of applause. <laughs> like, he, had, <laughs> he had he got me good. He he had a line at the end of the night. I was like, "Hey, did you enjoy yourself?" And he was just like, "You know, there are six thousand languages, in, you know, in the world, and the only one that you speak is talking shit." And I died. I was like, <laughs> I was like, "Motherfucker, got me!" Damn. <laughs> Holy um,
1: shit! That's a that's like an Eddie Kingston zinger right
0: there. Yeah, he got me good. Um, so Neil Neil he's is, he is one of our friends. He is welcomed among us. <laughs> Chris God Bailey damn. was like, we're gonna like give him a shirt. He's part of the he's part of the NWO now. Um, so uh, so check out that review. We had a really good time. Anytime I talk wrestling with Chris Bailey and whoever the third chair appears to be, we always have a good time. We have a ripper and good time talking about modern wrestling. So check out our AEW Double Nothing review. Um, earlier in the evening, myself, Robert Cooper, and Jesse Starcher reviewed the new Def Leppard album. We always have a good time um, horsing around whether or not the album's any good or not. Uh, this one, not great. But there was a lot of heaping praise for hysteria, as there should be, which came up a lot in that review. So also, we did a Metal Hammer of Doom extra, uh, on which my son appeared. Uh, he got to be on there. He got to mix it up with Robert Cooper and Jesse. We had a fun time. Talking to uh, one of the new creator videos and the subsequent album that's coming out, Hate Uber Alice. Um, there's, uh, da, da, da. oh, and speaking of wrestling, myself and Harry Broadhurst finally, finally, finally got done with the collective. Uh, we did the best of the collective on Monday night, uh, so that is up in the archive now for you to check out. Mm. Oh, Jesus Christ, like calendar keeps flying all over the place. So check out our Best of the Collective show. We've also got a bunch of re-airs this week. Um, we, it's Terminator week, because I decided it was. So we've got a, re- a 2015 review of Terminator Genesis that we did. Uh, Sean and I, with Jesse, actually a couple years ago, did A Long Road to Ruin for the first three Terminator movies. Uh, that's up in the archives now. And then Robert and I Uh, did two, not one, but two Everyone Loves the Bad Guys on Terminator Villains. So that'll be up today and tomorrow we have a re-airing of our source material for The Boys Volume 1, The Name of the Game. And uh, that's it for this week. Sean, tell them where you're twitching. Hey,
1: uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the handle you see right there on the screen. And... I am on Twitch at twitch.tv slash ComerCodex. Uh, May was kind of a wild month, so I had to get away from streaming for a little while. But now that I have got my kid settled into their new home, now that everything is starting to settle down, um, and despite the universe's worst efforts working against her, is poised to start a new job soon. And so that really frees up a lot of my energy to get back to entertaining some of you By playing the video games I love and telling y'all why I love them so much, Uh, you can catch me currently, usually from about 5 p.m. until about 8 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, I'm going to be playing uh, this coming Thursday night, which would be June 3rd. Uh, I am going to be diving back into the messenger, trying to work towards finishing that lovely little indie love letter to Ninja Gaiden. And then on Friday, just to shake things up a little bit, I am going to be starting a playthrough of one of the greatest superhero games ever made and one of my favorite games of any generation I have ever played Batman Arkham Asylum. Uh, We are going start to finish right through to the end. Borderline completionist run. Not going to be all in one night, unfortunately, but probably just a couple of weeks. And yeah,
0: for now, that's about it. Thank you for joining us here Thank on Triple P. Me. Uh, um, and uh, I'm really happy to do this. I wish. Uh, <laughs> cutting back on podcasting um just in time for things it's the irony of my life but uh you know had i had an infinite amount of time and resources i would absolutely continue to do these thematic months celebrating various culture and film so um Mm -hmm. but you know maybe we will still find time to do them hither and thither that said one more time i want to thank everyone for tuning into our show thanks sean for joining me tonight um here on triple feature be well be safe and behave